How are you doing? Anybody have a rough week? Well, this week marks the climax of a polarizing election process in our nation. Now, every political season is marked by passionate opinions from well-meaning citizens. But this election has been unusually characterized by fear and frustration from both sides of the ideological aisle. Maybe we hoped the election itself would bring the pot of political emotion down to a simmer. It's instead cranked up our country to a boil. The the person sitting next to you this morning may be feeling stunned or satisfied, outraged or indifferent, sad or glad or mad. As you have processed the outcome of the election this week, some of you have chosen to boldly communicate your thoughts and feelings. Others are silent, too afraid to speak. On both sides, motives are instantly judged or misjudged. So then, what in the world should a pastor say to a disciple of Jesus who's angry, anxious, or unfairly accused? What words could bring comfort to a Christ follower whose hopes have been dashed on the stone-cold surface of reality? What could I say to a person whose candidate won, but they're still afraid? Or they're tired of being misunderstood? Now, if you're part of our capital community, it probably won't surprise you which words I reach for. Grace and peace. The Apostle Paul began every one of his New Testament letters with grace and peace. He concluded most of his New Testament letters with grace and peace. Paul wrote his letters to people who desperately needed God's grace and peace. People who were trying to get along in spite of their contradictory worldviews, religious backgrounds, and socioeconomic situations. Some of Paul's readers longed for change. Others were terrified of change. Many were fighting mad as they struggled to love their neighbor who was different and difficult. And to make matters worse... They were increasingly coming to fear a hostile government that threatened their livelihood, even their lives. Well, Paul says to every one of them, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Later in the first century, the apostle Peter adopted the same greeting. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he wrote, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. You probably need more grace than you think. Too many followers of Jesus limit the role of grace to forgiveness of sins. With that understanding, grace is something Christians only need once or perhaps once in a while. Sure, grace means forgiveness of sins, but grace is a heck of a lot bigger than that. Dallas Willard offered my favorite definition of the word. He said, grace is God acting in your life to accomplish what you cannot? Does any biblical behavior 
feel impossible for you right now? No, let's keep it simple. Some low-hanging fruit. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. How'd that work out for you this week? Are you having trouble showing kindness to your obnoxious co-worker who you want to thump for voting for Trump? Are you struggling to find patience with the insufferable Hillary supporter who won't stop moaning or moping or maligning you for voting differently? What did we learn from studying Philippians last year? This last year? Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. How'd you do with that this week? Look, God's grace can forgive you. And God's grace can help you love others. So there won't be anything to forgive next time. May God's grace be yours in abundance. Some of you prayed some big, bold prayers this election season. And God didn't give you what you asked. In fact, his response to your prayers has left you reeling because you can't fathom a single reason why God wouldn't answer your prayers. The Apostle Paul knows how you feel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about a time he prayed a big, bold prayer, and God said no. And the paraphrase, the message, we read God's words to Paul, my grace is enough. It's all you need. To those who are deeply disheartened because God said no, may his grace be yours in abundance. That's grace. Let's talk about peace. For Paul, the word peace finds its meaning in the Hebrew word shalom. Though it's typically translated peace, the Hebrew word has less to do with the absence of something and more to do with the presence of something. Shalom means well-meaning, satisfaction. Shalom is a state of wholeness. It's a rich fulfillment in every area of life, your career, your religion, your relationships. Now, whether we call it shalom or not, shalom is the goal of every human being. We chase shalom in a variety of ways. Maybe you think success will bring shalom. Maybe you think marriage will bring shalom. Maybe you think or thought you'd find shalom in the 2016 presidential election. But the kind of peace spoken about in the Bible is found only in relationship to God. Peace is a person. I pray you find that person in this season. If you feel like you were robbed of your peace on Tuesday evening, I pray you experience the comfort of Jesus in spite of your disappointment. If you felt your peace picked away by the rhetoric on social media, I pray God gives rest to your soul. May you experience God's grace and peace in abundance. So much so that it sloshes out onto the people around you. You see, somehow in the mystery of God's plan, he's chosen you and me to be his agents of grace and peace. He wants us to live it. He wants us to give it, especially in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. So friends, 
when someone pushes your buttons at the dinner table. Grace and peace. When someone sets you off at the water cooler. Grace and peace. When someone posts something online that makes your teeth hurt. Instead of barking back or biting back or caving or criticizing. How about responding with grace and peace? No matter whom you voted for this season, I pray you never, ever put your ultimate hope in a politician or a political party. Hey, maybe your disappointment or jubilation offers you an opportunity to do a hope check. Where have you put your hope? Whether you're relieved your candidate won or disheartened your candidate lost, may you find the faith to remind yourself and the people around you that Jesus is king. That was true when you went to bed on Tuesday night. It was true when you woke up on Wednesday morning. Please stand with me. Because I'd like to take a moment and pray for our country. Now, we talked about this last week. Talked about this last week and prepared you for the vote this week, didn't I? And some of you have come back to me and said, Troy, I didn't think we'd need that after the election as much as we did before. Yeah, apparently we did. And remember what we looked at. We looked at a few passages of Scripture that, that, that ask us to pray for our leaders, our governmental leaders, who may or may not have anything to do with God. Throughout the New Testament, we're instructed to pray for them. Oh, well, let's get on that this morning. Now, even if you don't have the words to pray, I'll pray for us. But I hope you join your hearts with me. Would you do that? Father, I know our country is hurting. Our country's torn apart. There's so much anger and so much fear. But Lord, we come to you. We don't always understand what you're doing or why you do it and why you allow things to happen the way you allow them to. But we're going to trust you. As a community of disciples of Jesus, we're going to trust you. And for our friends among us today and among us in our circles of influence, help us model that trust. everyone we encounter. Lord, we, we pause to pray particularly for President-elect Trump. May you give him great wisdom as he surrounds himself with leaders and thinkers, people who will influence him and influence our country. Help him to get the right people in the right seats. I know he's been often criticized for his words over the last couple years and more. May you give him wisdom with his words that he might see the impact of them on our country. I'm in no position to truly know his heart. 
Lord, I pray in this season, even in this season, you would reveal yourself to him. Show him how real you are and that you are worthy of his trust. We also pray for Hillary Clinton and for Gary Johnson and Jill Stein and the other candidates who, who didn't win this year. May you give them comfort and direction for the days to come. Because I know many of them are left reeling as well. Oh Lord, I pray for us that you would help us to be a people who are defined, owned by grace and peace. May it show up in every word, in every conversation, in every Facebook post. Now as we turn to you, we look to you as our great God. For my friends who have been angry or anxious this week, may, may they sing this next song as an act of faith. Trusting in your greatness. We pray it in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Hi, friends. It feels kind of weird saying hi, friends, when you've seen me like three times already. <laughs> but it's a habit right here in the service, so I'm going to say it. Hi, friends. <clears throat> this morning we continue a series we're calling Stuff. Developing a Theology of Money and Possessions. Now, uh, through this series, we're taking an inward look about how we feel about money and how money makes us feel about ourselves and about life. This morning I've asked my friend Rob Harder to share from the scriptures. Rob's a, a dear friend. Virtually all of you know him by now. He's the executive director of the Christian Center in Park City, an incredible nonprofit organization. Rob has been so generous with his time. He's been so generous with, with me through this. And, and he's a good person to have talk about the subject we're covering today. So I pray that God opens your heart to hear what he has to say through our friend Rob. Would you pray with me? Lord, in this moment, give us ears to listen, hearts that hear what you're trying to say. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Hey, good morning, Capitol. How are you? Good. What a good crowd. It's great to see you guys finally settled down in the back there. That was a little crazy earlier, but thank you. No, it's fun. It's a good morning, and uh, thank you, Troy, uh, for that intro. And uh, yeah, money. It's one of those things, you know, it's, um, we, we look at money differently. I mean, just think about it. Let's just stop and think how different we are as people, right? Um, I mean, there are dog people. And there are cat people, right? There are coffee people, and there are tea people. Uh, there are skiers, and there are snowboarders, better known as sinners. Um, but what's okay? Um, God loves you. Uh, we don't. But no, just, just, just kidding, snowboarders. Just kidding. There are morning people, and there are night owls. There are fans of the Backstreet Boys and the rest of us. Um, so <laughs> people under 20 are like, who, who are the Backstreet Boys? Anyway, um, there are Mac users and there's wannabe Mac users. Okay, let's just be honest. Um, there are liberals and there are conservatives. There's Democrats, there's Republicans, there's golfers and there's tennis players. There are, there's a difference between golfers and tennis players. Here's the difference. Golfers tend to be pot-bellied cigar smokers. 
uh, tennis players tend to have plastic surgery and get fake tans. Um, and so, yeah, there's a difference between... Oh, sorry, that was a little harsh. Okay, then there's tofu eaters, and then there's people that like food. Um, so there's differences. We have so many differences, and that's good. It's the spice of life. When it comes to money, there are a lot of differences. We look at money differently. There are Nordstrom shoppers, and then there's TJ Maxx shoppers. There are credit card lovers, and then there's cash-only people. Uh, there are spendthrifts, and there are tightwads. There are people who love bling, and there are granola people. I mean, there is just the whole uh, spectrum of people when it comes to money. I think about Halloween, in fact. You know, Halloween happened a, a couple of weeks ago, right? Um, uh, one of my favorite holidays because of sugar. Um, that's not a good thing for me. But I remember growing up as a kid, my brother and I looked at Halloween candy very differently. And this what I mean. So we would, you know, it was like, for, first of all, Halloween for my brothers and I was a full contact sport. I mean, it was like elbowing each other to get to the door and to empty the bucket if no one's there. Anyway, so we had this really, really fun thing when it came to Halloween. So we had a lot of candy. So my brother set it out where he would meticulously save, I'm not kidding you, his Halloween candy the entire year till the next Halloween. Yeah, and it got crusty and nasty after a while. But I, on the other hand, in about two weeks, I was done. I mean, I just had a few ticks, but, you know, but it was fine. You know, sugar comas, but I, two weeks I was done, and all of my kids have taken after me. So I understand now, um, from my parents' point of view, how bad that can be with sugar intake. But we all look at money differently. The way we manage money is different. The way we look at life is different, and money is a powerful thing. I mean, think about it. Nations go to war over it. Couples have divorced over it. Business partners split over it. CEOs go bad over it. Model citizens betray their country over it. Movie stars and professional sports celebrities flaunt in it. And all of us would probably like a little bit more of it. Money has power. Money shapes the way we live. Money colors a lot of how we look at life, right? And particularly in American culture, think about this. You know, we're in a very much um, a culture that is bombarded daily hourly with advertisements. I'm thinking about you go to the, co- the uh, shopping, or go to Smith's, for example, in the shopping cart, there's an ad on your shopping cart, right? Uh, there's infomercials on TV. There's pop-up ads on the internet. Think about sports stadiums. I came from Denver a few years ago before moving here. The Denver Broncos football stadium is not called Mile High Stadium anymore. It's the Sports Authority Field at Mile High. Which is really funny because Sports Authority actually filed for bankruptcy. So they have a problem. They're going to have to rename their stadium. The Utah Jazz right here. Utah's Jazz Stadium, you know, where the basketball team plays. Do you know what the name is of that stadium? It's not the Jazz Center. It is... Yes, someone just had right here. Vivint Smart Home Arena. What smart home has to do with basketball? I have no idea, but that's the name of the stadium. I mean, that gets you fired up, you know? Pretty soon, they're going to start calling, like, the new field house is going to be Preparation H Fieldhouse. I mean, think about that. And then... Metamucil Stadium. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of fun names that really get you excited because it's all about advertising. We're bombarded with you need more. You need this one more product. You're not quite fulfilled in life until you have this product, right? We're we're bombarded with that every day. So every day is a battle to be content. Every day is a battle to be generous because of the culture we live. So how do we have this um, idea of being generous? How do we grow a generous heart when it comes to money specifically? And I believe it starts with a shift. We have to shift the way we look at money, the way we view money. Now, and I realize uh, when I 
talk about money in church. This is a hard thing, I'll be honest. Uh, and I, I really applaud Troy for doing this series because this is a difficult subject. Um, most of the times in the past when I've been you know, in churches in the past, when we ever, whenever we did this money series, typically the attendance goes from here and goes way down because people don't want to hear about money particularly in the church. And so I honestly want to applaud all of you. We've, this is our third week in the series, and you guys are still coming back. Awesome. Thank you for being brave to want to talk about money. It's a big deal. And here's the thing. Some of you may have had a bad experience in church, truly, where you had a pastor that did not manage the money well. And then, of course, we all know the stories of televangelists with really big hair and even bigger gold watches that have really abused this issue of money right? Robert Tilton was one of those that got caught doing this. And here's two of his books, by the way. Maybe you've saw these books. First one of his books was How to Be Rich and Have Anything You Ever Wanted. Oh, who doesn't want that book, right? <laughs> the only problem is it has nothing to do with Jesus. And then the other book is this one. I really like this title, How to Pay Your Bills Supernaturally. <laughs> Try that with your mortgage payment. So, you know, it's, it's from heaven. It's, it's fine. It's in the mail somewhere. You'll get it like a hundred years from now. I mean, Seriously, pay your bills supernaturally. Is like God going to show up and do it? I mean, so, so here I say that because we, many of us, when it comes to money and church, it's not always been a good combination. So this is a difficult subject to talk about. It's delicate. It's challenging. Maybe you again have a lot of cynicism and skepticism, and I understand that. I get it. So the best that I can do, and I know Troy's been doing this last couple of weeks, is we want to try to come at this topic from what God shares with us through His Word. Because here's the thing, Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, it's one of the number one subjects he talked about. Isn't that surprising? Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, more specifically, 16 of Jesus' approximately 38 parables dealt with money. 16 out of 38. Uh, not only that, but uh, Jesus spoke about money more than any other topic except one topic. The, the topic he talked the most about was the kingdom of God. But money is number two. So if we want to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus, we've got to talk about money. And I know it may make you squirm a little bit, make me uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. But we've got to talk about this. So here we go. Now I want to just give a foundational truth that I'm guessing all of us have heard this before. This is not a surprise. But I just want to lay it out there. Because sometimes it's good to start with, okay, here's a fundamental, foundational truth. And that's this. God owns everything. God owns everything. Psalm 24 one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's pretty much everything. I mean, there's nothing that can squeeze out of that. Say, I'm not part of that picture. God owns everything. So technically, you and, he, you and me, you and I, we don't own anything on our own. All that we have, all that we have, our money, our lives, our relationships, our resources, actually are God's stuff, and we're just stewards. We're just managers. It's all God's stuff. In fact, I like the title of the series, Stuff, but it's really God's stuff. Everything is God's. He owns everything. We're just managers and stewards. So starting with that, that helps us, I think, weed through this topic of money a little bit easier. In fact, here's what I think of when I think about this concept that everything is God's. One of the things um, I love taking my girls out to get ice cream, particularly when they were little, Right, so I take them to get ice cream, I get in the car, I drive them to the ice cream place, I buy them all ice cream, and they would sit down and I would say, Hey, can I have some of your ice cream? And hey, you know, Emma, can I have some of your ice cream? And and they would just like, Dad, no, it's mine, you know. It's like, of course they don't want to share their ice cream, right? From dad. And yet I, I didn't do this, but I thought this, okay, wait, I put 
money to get gas in the car. I drove you to the ice cream store, which you couldn't get to by yourself. That's a really long walk. And then I paid for the ice cream, which you didn't have money for. And yet when I just asked for a little bite, okay, maybe a big bite, but I asked just for a little bite. You're like, no, it's mine. You know, isn't it ironic? And I just think, you know what? I think I do that to God probably more than I'd like to admit. God will prompt me to give something. I'm like, wait a second, that's mine. I, I can't get rid of that. It's like, wait, but God, God gave it to me. It's God's. You know, it's the same concept. God owns everything. So how do we manage? How can we manage our money and our resources in a God-honoring way, if we know that? How do we manage our money and resources in a God-honoring way? I think it starts not with our bank account, not with our amounts of savings that we have tucked away. It's not by the basis of what kind of salary we have. How we start or where we start is with our hearts. It's our hearts. It's very fundamental. Matthew, said, Matthew 6, 21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we're going to start with our hearts tonight, today. Start with our hearts. And to really unpack how do we manage our money in a God-honoring way, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. So if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7, Paul talks about money. Just like Jesus talked about money, Paul talks about money. So if you have your Bibles, again, you can look at that. Otherwise, it's going to be up here on the screen. It's from the NIV. And let me read a couple of verses, and we'll unpack um, this idea of how we manage our money in a God-honoring way. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7 starts like this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, little joking here. This is pastor's favorite passage. <laughs> You're like, hey, God loves a cheerful giver, so let's be cheerful. Let's give a lot to the church here, right? So you can use this verse. All right, so cheerful, the Greek word is hilaron, hilaron. And actually, it's the root word where you get the word hilarious. All right. So now it doesn't mean you should give in a non-thinking way, like, oh yeah, I'll just give my money. Who cares? You know, no, 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 it's not about not having a plan or just being ridiculous with your money. No. It's this. In the context, it means we shouldn't be giving under pressure. Shouldn't do it in response to pressure. Like televangelists often put a lot of pressure on you, you know? Not under pressure. It's not reluctantly. In other words, uh, when you think about giving to the church or other uh, good causes, you ought not think, okay, now wait a second. What's my return on investment here? If I give this and I give to my stock fund and, and I, I don't know if I should give this much to the church or, or what is the church going to do with my money anyway? Like really, what do they do with my money? You know, that's the idea of reluctantly. What this passage I think is getting to is that God loves it. When we're so excited about giving, when it comes out of the out, outflow of our heart, that we just can't wait to give to a good cause for a good reason, and we're just ready to be generous and to give. That's a cheerful giver. In fact, when I hear that word cheerful giver, I actually have some people in mind that I think of when I think of cheerful giver. I remember um, several years ago, my wife and I started a church from scratch. And it's another story, but, but bottom line, I really sensed God leading me to start this church and leading my wife and I. And we had... All the energy in the world, but we had zero budget. Uh, it really was. It was like no money. And uh, we, just, we felt like God called us to do this. So we were having to you know, generate um, uh, vision casting opportunities with people and say, we, 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 this is what we feel like we want to do. Would you join us in this venture of starting this new church and reaching these people that don't have a church, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember sitting down at the, in the house of a friend named Rick and his wife. 
and we sat down in the living room, and I still remember this. Uh, it's been years ago, and I still remember sitting down there and kind of sweating a little bit, like, is he really going to get behind this idea of a church, right? And so we had this great conversation. At the end, Rick uh, turns to my wife and I and said, you know what? Rick says, you know, my wife and I have talked, and we've prayed, and we, and we really feel like we want to be a part of this church. And we've decided to write a check, and here's the check. And so we didn't open it right away. And we said, this is exciting. And we just left. And they were so excited to be able to give towards this new church. And so we get in the car and so we start driving away. He's like, Leah, what, what's the check? And so she opened up the check because we're so excited about it, right? And it's $8,000. And I'm like, rrr, rrr. I almost get an accident. I'm like, well, let me see how many zeros are on that check, you know? $8,000. Now that may not sound like a lot, but when you have zero money in your budget, and this is one of the first gifts you are astounded. It's like manna from heaven because God provided where there was really in a sense, nothing. And and I could tell you stories of several other couples and individuals that came up and said, we want to be a part of this. And here is your check for this. Here's a check for that. And it was just incredible to see how God provided. And I go back to Rick and his wife being a cheerful giver. They were excited to do it. They weren't under compulsion. They weren't reluctant. They weren't, you know, being pressured. They just were excited about it. Here's another example. When I think of a cheerful giver, um, one of the things that you maybe actually heard about with this Thanksgiving fund, uh, one of the programs at the Christian Center where I lead the, the nonprofit up in Park City, uh, we do this thing called Operation Hope. And for the last several years, Capital has been a great partner. We actually partner together to take Operation Hope gifts to the Goshute tribe, which is a Native American tribe on the far western part of Utah. And I'm telling you, I've been there. I'm always the one with my team. We present these gifts to these Native American kids. And it's amazing. Just like you saw that video, how that just tugs on your heart, you know? Same thing. When you see kids that know that they couldn't afford these gifts and then have people like you generously give these Christmas gifts, it opens up this huge door. All right, so that's Operation Hope. A few years ago, I remember getting a call that, hey, there's uh, somebody in the lobby. I'm back at the office in Park City. Someone wanted to meet with me. And and, uh, the word was from my secretary was, um, someone wants to meet with the executive director. And whenever I heard executive director, and not my name, Rob, I know someone's probably upset about something. I've got a problem to fix, or someone's angry about something. So I'm thinking as I walk from my office to the lobby, I'm praying, okay, what, what's gonna, uh, I'm gonna come into now. But this one was a good one. This was a mom who brought her eight year old son. It was so cool. So she comes in, she's like, I just wanna explain, Rob, I gotta tell you this personally. My eight year old decided for his birthday, instead of getting gifts for himself, He wanted to get all these gifts that would otherwise go to him to go to this Operation Hope program and go to kids that wouldn't get Christmas gifts otherwise. And I just literally looked there. I'm I'm a grown man, and I'd have a hard time doing that with my gifts for my birthday. And you're eight years old? Are you kidding me? You are my new hero. I mean, this is incredible. And this boy was just beaming. He was so excited about it. Like the innocence of an eight-year-old, just like, yeah, this is so exciting. There were so many gifts. And sure enough, they were bringing the gifts in. There was a ton of gifts. He could have scored big on his eight-year-old birthday. And he decided to give it to these kids that needed the gifts instead. That's a cheerful giver. That's a cheerful giver. When I think of a cheerful giver, I think of... A person that realizes that we are blessed to be a blessing. That's what a cheerful giver is. Someone who knows that we're blessed to be a blessing. Now, I share those stories with you. And as I said before, this is a hard topic, right? Particularly when it comes into church. So what I like to do to kind of lighten the mood a little bit maybe is I want to give you 
another person's perspective when it comes to giving in the church. I've got a brief video clip I want you to watch, and I think you'll appreciate their perspective. Take a look. (laughs) Is that awesome or what? Oh, I love that. Benji likes hymns. Put that on your Instagram. That's just a great, like, you know, phrase. Just put it, yeah. There's your new hashtag, Benji likes hymns. All right, so there's some perspectives on money. What does God's word say again about money? Let's look up here on the screen. Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25 says this. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. In fact, I love how the message actually says this. Here's what, listen to the message. Um, it interprets the verse 24 like this. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. And I'll just tell you from my own personal experience, I, whenever I fight this sense of I need to give and, and, and give to whatever God has prompted me to give to, it is amazing when you begin to trust God and start giving. It does have the sense like your, your world gets bigger. It's kind of that abundance mentality versus the scarcity mentality. You've heard that apply to different parts of your life. But when it comes to money, it's true. And when we withhold and we, and we worry and we're like, I don't know, we don't have enough. And, and all of a sudden our, our heart shrinks and our world gets smaller and smaller. And our God, I think, we, our experience of God gets smaller and smaller. Money's a difficult thing. I understand. But if we lean into what God has to say... There's some amazing things that we can learn through it. In fact, let's continue. Let's look back at 2 Corinthians, where we left off. Back at 2 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul goes on to say some really, really powerful things. Verse 9 and 11, take a look up here on the screen what Paul says. He says this, And as God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Here's this. We are blessed to be a blessing. I mean, this is really interesting. So it starts out with saying God is able to bless you abundantly so that you'll be able to abound in every good work. You will be enriched so that you will be generous on every occasion. So there is a sense God wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. It's not about you getting a whole bunch of good stuff. It's God saying, this is my stuff, and I want you to steward and manage it well so you can bless others around you. We are blessed to be a blessing. And by the way, it's not how much we get or how much we're given. It's what we do with what we're given. I know for me, for a long time, my wife and I were like, okay, kind of like the, one of the guys that was in there in that vignette of, you know, we got to wait till we have enough money, we have enough savings, and, you know, wait till we get to a certain level economically and financially and our salaries a certain level, and then we could really start giving really generously, you know? But it's not about how much you've been given. It's what you do with what you've been given. It starts now. You know, it starts with your heart. We're blessed to be a blessing. Let me give you an example of this. You know, back in Denver when I was a pastor, we had this men's group. And there's a guy in there named Scott, and we went to the Denver Rescue Mission with the uh, men's group. There's a lot of guys in my men's group at the time had never been to a homeless shelter. So I wanted to sh- give them experience of what it's like to be in a homeless shelter. So we went there, we served food, we got to meet the staff, we asked lots of questions. And one of the questions Scott asked was, what's the number one need for people that stay in the rescue mission? And the response was socks and underwear. By the way, that's still true today. I mean, we have up in uh, Park City in the Christian Center, you'd be surprised to know, but there are homeless people every day that come into our lobby. Every day. And you know what the number one need is still? Socks and underwear. 
Hygiene kits too, right after that. But socks and underwear. Anyway, back to the story. So Scott hears this, okay, socks and underwear. I can do something about this. So he decides to call his dad back in Pennsylvania. It's like, dad, because they had some relationship with this, the, no kidding, this socks lady who had all these socks. And so he asked his dad, could you order a whole bunch of socks? I want to give them to these homeless uh, men in the Denver Rescue Mission. If you could order a bunch of socks and send them this way. Well, the socks lady heard this story. And decided to give a whole bunch of free socks and free shipping and send it all the way from Pennsylvania to Colorado to give to the Denver Rescue Mission. Now, mind you, Scott and his wife had told me privately they were struggling. I mean, literally, they, they had some debt. They were, they were going paycheck to paycheck, month to month. They didn't have a lot of extra. They were barely making it financially. But after going to the rescue mission, he was so compelled by God to do something. He felt like compared to those who were homeless, he was blessed. Yeah, he needed to do something. So that's why he got excited about getting these socks. And so when people heard the story, they got behind it. And sure enough, we got a ton of socks that we got sent to the Denver Rescue Mission. Now, if that wasn't cool enough, a few months later, true story, a few months later, um, he got a windfall, if you will, um, an insurance refund check that he was not expecting at all. And so he got a bunch of extra income he wasn't expecting. And I remember him coming back to the men's group saying that I really believe, guys, that this is God just showing me that when I trust him, he will bless in ways that we never thought that God would bless. And so he gets this extra refund track from his insurance, right? And I'm thinking, okay, he could probably use this. You know, he's just going paycheck to paycheck. What a wonderful thing. No, no, no. For Scott, he decides to give half of it to buy more socks and goes back to the socks lady. And gets more socks, and the lady again is just so moved by the story. Free shipping, throws a bunch of extra things in, and we get so- more socks for more men at the Denver Rescue Mission right before winter when they really need it. I'll never forget that story because here's a guy who didn't have much, but was so compelled to give to people who, in a sense, had way less than he did. He was blessing people. He blessed our entire men's group. I still remember the story I shared with you. I mean, he was blessed and he became a blessing. He was a cheerful giver. He was happy to do this. That's what happens when we look at money a little differently. That's what happens when we understand all of this anyway. It's God's stuff anyway. So help us to be better stewards, God, of your stuff. We are blessed to be a blessing. Let me ask you uh, this. You know, Paul mentioned something very interesting. In this passage, he said that God's going to bless us so that we can abound in every good work. I like that phrase. Why? Because it goes beyond money now. We're moving beyond money. We've started with money. But when God blesses us, it goes well beyond our money to our relationships, to our time, to our talents, to our relationships with other people, with people here and and our neighbors, our, our family. God wants us to be a blessing in multiple areas of our life, right? So let me just ask you a question today. How has God been good to you? How has God blessed you? today. Sometimes we are so driven by advertisement that we're, we're, we need one more car or we need a little bit better, you know, this or that. What, and we're bombarded with more, more, more. You need more. That's hard to be content with what we have, right? No kidding. This happened just this week. Um, was it on Wednesday night? Um, so we had this issue. I was about ready to go to sleep. It was late at night. It was a long day. And then one of my kids rushed up and said, Dad, the, the bathtub is still just, the water's just pouring out of the bathtub and I can't get it to turn off. 
Okay, so I go down there, and by the way, I'm not Mr. Home Depot. I'm really not a good Mr. Fix-It, so don't ask me to come fix your bathtub, because I can't do this kind of thing. So I go down there, and I try to, you know, do the normal thing, turn the hand, uh, you know, handle down and up, and move things around, and nothing work, and this hot water is just pouring out of the bathtub, right? So I'm not kidding you. I get on my phone on YouTube. How do you stop bathtub water when it's coming out? You know, I just did this Google search. Sure enough, there's videos about this on YouTube. And so it's like, you do this, you take this out. So I'm watching the video and trying to do everything I can to take it off. And, and then realize you actually have to have some special tools because what we learned later was a seal had actually broken inside of the unit itself. And you actually have, have to have the right tools to be able to switch that out. And it was 10 o'clock at night. None of my friends that really are good at this kind of stuff are Mr. Home Depot type people were available. And I didn't feel, I felt bad asking them. So we had to make a decision. The water's pouring out. We had to turn all of the water off to the house because there's no way to stop this water. So we did. So that night, and then for a, not even 24 hours, we had to go back to the main water valve, turn it on, do a quick shower, you know, do get water for whatever the kids need for the school, and then turn it back off, you know, one of these things. And it, it was, it sounds even as I say, kind of ridiculous, but you know what? It was such an inconvenience. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, I just want to turn the water on and just get water to drink or, or to wash my hands or take a shower or whatever, right? Brush my teeth. And we realized in less than 24 hours what it was like not to have access to clean water. That's just this past Wednesday. Did you know that one out of 10 people in this world right now don't have access to clean water? One in 10 people. One in three people in the world, according to the United Nations, one in three people don't have access to clean sanitation. And I just experienced it for less than 24 hours, and it was driving me crazy not to have water. And so I just share that to say, I was, I'm kind of embarrassed how, how crazy I, I was so frustrated. And like, come on, I just want to turn the water on, you know? And, and we couldn't because of this little issue. And it just reminded me that God has blessed me so much, has blessed us. If you have running water today, you are blessed. You are blessed. If your toilet works, you are blessed. But if it's broken, don't ask me. Don't call me because I will, I will not help you um, because I don't know how. Um, we are blessed in so many ways. I think we just forget sometimes the blessings that we have. At least I do. So we are blessed to be a blessing. You know, this past Friday was Veterans Day. In fact, I just thought it would be appropriate. How many people are veterans in here? Okay, I want to just applaud them. Thank you so much for your service, truly. Thank you. You know, Veterans Day, I remember we had this discussion with our staff. You know, typically it's on a Monday, and it was odd to be on a Friday. But I remember um, we have one of our staff members that's a veteran. And it got me thinking about this with this message and everything. One of my favorite movies was Saving Private Ryan. You guys remember that movie? Phenomenal movie. And Veterans, I'm sure, is an incredible movie. Just a quick recap, if you haven't watched that for a long time or have never watched that movie, here's the basic summary. So Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, is asked by the military to do a special mission to rescue a man named Private James Ryan, played by Matt Damon. And here's the scenario. So James Ryan in the movie had lost his three brothers. So he'd be the fourth brother, and the military doesn't want the mom and dad to lose all of their sons in the same war. So they send Captain Miller to go rescue James Ryan from the arena of war. So Captain Miller does that and goes to rescue James Ryan. He's successful, but in the process, he dies. And in this picture that we see here is at the end of James Ryan's life. He's an old man now looking at the grave of Captain Miller. And his entire life is shaped by the fact that Captain Miller died so that he could live. It shaped his entire life. 
It motivated him in his life. And I thought, unless you're a veteran, my guess is most of us can't relate to that because most of us probably have never had someone actually literally physically die for us so that we could live. And yet, as I thought about that with Veterans Day, all of us can relate to this one because all of us. Let me back up. Jesus Christ died for every single one of us in this room. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and for me, literally. So in another sense, all of us can relate to this experience. And so when I think about my stuff, I think about not just my money, but my resources and my very life. When we look at it in the context that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and for me so that we could live. Doesn't it shape the entire way you look at life and your stuff and everything you've been given? That we have just been so blessed and God asked us to be a blessing. In fact, let me just close with this. 2 Corinthians 9, is, it continues. Paul just says something fascinating to me. And we'll, we'll close with this up on the screen. It says this, 11 and 13 of 2 Corinthians 9. Paul continues to say, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity, what? Will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. What's so powerful about this is when we begin to understand that all of our stuff, all of our relationships, all of all that we have, our very lives, when we begin to live it in a God-honoring way, people begin to get a glimpse of the living God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus told us to live. He, he wanted us to live these kinds of lives. So the attention's not on us. The attention is on God, that they actually get to experience this real living God through our lives. So we are so blessed so that we can be a blessing. And it's not just about our money. It's about our relationships, our time, our talents, our very lives. Here's what I'd like to do just to close. And I just want to tie into what Troy said earlier. I'm so glad he uh, addressed this post-election issue that we have. I mean, last night we were here, you know, at Capitol, but there was a, a demonstration on the, the Capitol steps, I understand, about the same time we were here in, at Capitol with the service. So here's what I'd like to do. Now, we've done this the last two services, and it may feel, for some of you, it may feel uncomfortable, but I just think it's so important that we do this. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do, and then I'll, we're going to actually have Troy come up and pray. But uh, we said today, we are blessed to be a blessing, Right? And it's beyond just money. This is about how we live our lives. And we are living in a nation, as Troy said earlier, that we're more divided than ever. I tell my kids, I, I've never seen a post-election response like this ever. We're living in uncertain times right now. And so I just want to ask us at this time, so would you mind just standing? And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like you, if you feel comfortable, I just want you to cross the aisles and hold hands. I just want us together to come together as a community. Here's why. If we can't come together at Capitol Church, even if you don't know the people across the way, how can we as a culture come together? So here's what I want to do. Just close with this. Then Troy's going to wrap up with a, a prayer. You know, you've all heard about the golden rule. Do unto others as you've had them do unto you. 
Well, there's a platinum rule, and it's not original with me, and Andy Stanley was the first person I heard, and I'm not sure it's original with him, but it's the platinum rule. This is the platinum rule. The platinum rule is this. Jesus commands us in John 13, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the platinum rule. It's not just about treating people like you want to be treated. It's treating people the way Christ treated you. And what did Christ do? He gave his life for you and for me. We have all been blessed to be a blessing. And we have an amazing opportunity right now in our country today to be a blessing to those around us. So, Troy, would you come and close us? Thanks, Rob. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we live in an imperfect nation. In days like this, those imperfections are glaring. But maybe this is a good moment to stop and show a little gratitude. Though our nation is imperfect, wow, are we blessed. We really are. We really are blessed that we can come and worship together in freedom. We're blessed that people can protest in freedom. We're blessed that people can vote their protest. We're blessed. We're blessed. We're blessed. And we thank you for that. Help us not to take that for granted. May us be, become people of grace and peace who remember that what brings us together is so much more important and so much more powerful than what divides us. And Lord, help us to take very seriously the other ways that we're blessed, particularly with money and possessions in this season as we go through this series and go through the holidays, may our eyes be wide open to how blessed we are and may that blessing inspire us to give. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can let go of the hand, <laughs> the sweaty, sweaty hand of the person next to you. Keep standing for a minute. Let me give you some homework. You ready? A verse for the week. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. We're also going to make this graphic available to you. Now, both of these images are available to download our online bulletin, also on our social media accounts a little later this week. One more assignment for you. I want to give you something to read. I want to give you something to read about the election. And this is from one of my favorite writers. Ann Voskamp, this week, posted something very important on her blog. And I want you to go there and read it. And I don't give a flying flip who you voted for. Read it. Okay? The title of the blog post is Win or Lose, The Way Forward Through This Messy Brokenness, okay? So it was a few days ago, you'll have to scroll down to get to this blog post, but you've got to read it. You know what she's going to coach you to do? Empathize. She is going to coach you to understand 
the person who voted differently than you. It's brilliant. You got to read her beautiful words. If you'd like to receive prayer, there will be some people waiting here at the front to pray for you. Make your way up. Invite them to do so. My prayer, Rob's prayer, our prayer for all of you. May you count your blessings with humility and with gratitude. This week, may you carefully consider how God might want you to use your blessings to bless someone else. Thanks for being here. Grace and peace.